I watch television and uh, about half of the ads are for uh, prescription drugs. Uh, it's, uh, it puts uh, patients and doctors in a, in a very difficult position. When you're prescribing, you always need to think about the downsides of, or the patient, right? And so one of the downsides is actually just taking a pill every day. It, it is a significant issue. And uh, every time somebody takes a pill, they're reminded that they have a problem that they need to take the pill for. So that's a downside. And then you need to think of the cost. And uh, often uh, doctors uh, don't uh, appreciate the, uh, the cost. Dr. James Wright obtained his MD from the University of Alberta in 1968, was inducted as a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians in 1975, and earned his PhD in pharmacology from McGill University in 1976. He is a practicing specialist in internal medicine and clinical pharmacology and co-managing director of the Therapeutics Initiative. He serves as editor-in-chief of the Therapeutics Letter and a coordinating editor of the Cochrane Hypertension Review Group. Additionally, he sits on the editorial boards of Plus One and the Cochrane Library. We hope you enjoy this episode on the importance of evidence-based guidelines for the appropriate use of drugs. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everyone and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We have a very exciting guest for you all today, especially for those of us who uh, like to talk about drug use and prescribing the right medication. This one should be very informative. But before we hop into that, Caleb, I heard you had a quite an exciting weekend this weekend. Yeah, I did. I had a busy weekend. Finished M3, took my last exam, competed in a CrossFit competition, and then now I'm studying for step two. So it's been a busy few weeks and got a little bit more to push, but enjoying it myself and looking forward to this episode. Let's not be modest here. I want to congratulate you for competing <laughs> in the quarterfinals of the National CrossFit Games. Like, it's nothing, it's nothing to sneeze at. So thank you. Thank you. Dr. Wright, how have you been? I'm, I'm well, thanks. Yeah. So we wanted to start this uh, interview by asking you broadly, where did your interest in and how we prescribe medication and what the appropriate use of medications is. And where did that, that interest kind of cultivate from? It, it started um, when I was uh, uh, in at studying, uh, doing a summer um, research project uh, after first year medicine. I, I worked with a pharmacologist uh, and did uh, research in the lab and uh, just uh, became interested in drugs. And then as I continued with my medical education, I realized that um, many of the problems that I was seeing, I could, I could solve by uh, just looking at what, what the drugs might be doing in those patients. And it was easier to solve problems by stopping drugs than by uh, um, adding drugs. And so if you could, if, if you could find that the, uh, the cause of the problem was the drugs, then you could, uh, you could solve the problem by, by stopping it and recognizing that uh, how powerful and how complicated drugs are. So, uh, yeah, so I, I've always had an interest. And then I, um, when I was doing my internal medicine residency, when I went to Montreal and was doing my internal medicine residency, they had a clinical pharmacology program there. And so I decided to, to join that program and also uh, to do a, uh, I, 
I applied for a fellowship and then I started a PhD in, in, in pharmacology at McGill University while I was doing my internal medicine training. So when Peter and I were reading about you, we read some articles and you use a term called appropriate use a lot. Can you define what you mean by appropriate use of medications? Well, appropriate use is when there is uh, good evidence that the benefits uh, outweigh the harms. Uh, a lot of medications are being taken for prevention. And in that setting, uh, a doctor or a patient can't really know whether it's benefiting them, benefiting the person or harming the person. And so the only way you would know is if they, if they had randomized trials that showed that, that in that setting, uh, uh, patients uh, who took the drug uh, did better than um, patients who uh, took a placebo. And so it, it, it's, uh, yeah, that would be that that would be an appropriate uh, setting uh, in that in that case. Uh, when you're treating a, a symptom, then the appropriate use is when you use the drug in the lowest dose possible and uh, and you achieve what you're trying to achieve, which is uh, uh, decreasing the pain or whatever whatever symptom you're you're doing. But you you need to evaluate it uh, carefully in each patient. Does the term appropriate use um, also encompass thing, physiolog things that are non-physiological side effects, say the economic burden of a drug or the stigma that comes alongside using particular drugs? Yeah, well, when you're, when you're prescribing, you always need to think about uh, the downsides of, of, for the patient, right? And so one of the downsides is actually just taking a pill every day. It, it is a significant issue and, uh, and um, every time somebody takes a pill, they're reminded that they have a problem that they need to take the pill for. So that's a downside. And then you need to think of the cost. And uh, often uh, doctors uh, don't uh, appreciate the, the cost. And in Canada, outpatient uh, drugs are paid for by the patient. Um, or if they have a drug plan, then it uh, is paid for. But it's, uh, yeah, so the cost is, is an important issue. I listened to some of uh, the Michaela Peterson podcast that you put out and you talked about psychiatric medications and, and benzos. What do you, how do you think appropriate use plays into this and what are most prescribers not know about some of these medications? Well, the main thing with the psychiatric medications is that, and what, what doctors don't appreciate is that they get on the market purely based on short-term trials. And so they have, some um, benefit in in the short term, but uh, often they're then being prescribed long term, and there are no long term trials. And so, almost all those drugs, we do not know that uh, the benefits outweigh the harms uh, in the long term, and that's kind of scary to think about because uh, uh, it it basically means that uh, huge numbers of people are being uh, treated in that setting where we don't know and where it's uh, very possible that the harms are outweighing, uh, outweighing the benefits. And so I, um, I always push for uh, long-term trials. In my area in hypertension, um, we, at one time people um, were giving drugs just because they lowered blood pressure. And then people said, well, we should do a trial to find out whether there is a, 
benefit in that. And so they did some uh, large uh, long-term trials and they did find that there is some benefits in, in people who have moderate to severe uh, elevations in blood pressure. Um, and so in that setting, the benefits uh, do uh, outweigh the harms. And so it's justified in that setting. But even, uh, even in mild hypertension, um, there isn't good evidence that the benefits outweigh the harm. So, so we are uh, greatly over-treating a lot of people, uh, or at least we're treating people where there isn't uh, evidence of, of appropriate use. When, we're, when we start to uncover these kind of findings based on long-term trials, it sounds like a lot of uh, waste in the healthcare system is being exposed as well. And so how does, how does uh, the appropriate use of drugs play a role in the healthcare system in terms of like where the money is flowing and how do we, uh, how to increase the quality of care that we're providing to our patients and, and what should physician leaders be aware of when they are going about their careers and having these big discussions about whether or not certain drugs are treating diseases like hypertension or, or other chronic, yeah diseases yeah well um so you know we uh, in a lot of the work i've been doing in the latter part of my career is in doing systematic reviews and uh, looking at uh, the best available evidence um, and some of the times when we do that we do a systematic review and we find that uh, there isn't uh, good evidence for a certain uh, setting and I guess maybe the best example is mild hypertension. So mild hypertension is people with um, blood pressures in the 140 to 160 over 90 to 100 range. And they're being uh, routinely treated and they're being routinely treated based on, on, on guidelines. But those guidelines are not uh, looking at the evidence and not appreciating that there is a lack of evidence in, in that setting. And so I, for young people, I think I would encourage you to get into uh, pushing for um, not, not industry funded, but uh, uh, government uh, funded uh, randomized trials that are answer, to answer these questions. And then, um, you know, and then, and then physicians need to, uh, not prescribe necessarily in the setting where there isn't uh, isn't evidence, and or at least you should tell the patient um, that we're, you know this is a setting, this is a situation we don't know whether the benefits outweigh the harms, and let the patient uh, uh, decide. And when when I've been practicing and I tell people that, um, the majority of people uh, don't don't want to take a medication, so so they if there isn't evidence, they say, well, that's fine. Uh, uh, I won't. I won't take something then. Why is there a disconnect between the systematic reviews and the guidelines? I think. Well, okay. So in the hypertension area, and it would it would uh, it would apply to psychiatric uh, conditions as well. The guidelines are universally developed um, with funding um, from the drug industry. And uh, it's either overt or it's uh, behind the scenes, uh, and it's uh, people who have significant conflicts. And if you, they they usually now uh, declare their conflicts. So if you read 
But if you read a guideline and you find that uh, most of the people writing it are in a conflicted uh, situation and are working um, closely with drug companies, then you should be uh, very skeptical as to whether uh, you should follow those guidelines. So guide, you know, so so guidelines then are they say they're evidence based, but they're also they're evidence based and biased. And uh, so anyway, we should be we should be insisting that guidelines be funded by uh, non-conflicted uh, sources and not uh, not not conflicted sources. When we're talking about it's, systematic review. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to? Yeah. Anyway, it's sad that uh, that's the case, but it, it, it is the case. Yeah. So when we're talking about systematic reviews, um, do they? How do they reduce the bias that we that we're creating in in these drug trials that are sponsored by companies or um, in in the information that's available to physicians? Um. So, I mean, the, the person who's doing the systematic review needs to be uh, not in a conflict of interest position, and they need to be just interested in what is the truth. And then uh, it is true that a lot of the trials are biased. And so, you know, so when you do a systematic review, you're at risk of uh, putting together a bunch of uh, biased information and therefore just magnifying the, the the bias so you have to be really careful about uh, that and then um, interpret the evidence uh, based on on that uh, in in hypertension for, fortunately a lot of the trials are were funded by um, by government sources and we're we're relatively unbiased and so so we do have uh, evidence from unbiased uh, trials, but uh, if you actually compare the biased trials to the unbiased trials, you'll find that uh, the uh, the the benefits are are not as great, um, and the harms are greater in the unbiased trials than in the, the biased trials. So so you have to be looking for that uh, at all times, unfortunately. But that's that's what we're up against. And when you say bias, do you just mean funded by drug organizations or are there other types of bias that you're speaking of as well? Well, <clears throat> there probably are other biases, but much by far the strongest bias is uh, when the trial is uh, designed, uh, conducted, and often uh, co-authored by people um, <laughs> from the company um, and so in that setting it's uh, anyway potentially very strongly biased uh, in, in favor of the of the drug because that's that's what their job is to is to sell the drug right not not necessarily to do what's best for the patient so when um as someone who works in research and actually is working to start a clinical trial mm -hmm. It's been very difficult to secure funding. And a lot of the times, the companies are the ones who are able to provide the funding to recruit patients and also provide the drug that you may need if you have a new uh, target that you want to look at. How do we get around this as physicians, as researchers, and still be able to collaborate with pharmaceutical companies to bring new and transformative treatments to patients? 
Um, there are, in, anyway, there are there are examples of of trials that. Um, I, I, have you heard of the All Hat trial? No, no. It's a, it was a big trial uh, uh, run by um, a, a guy named Kurt Ferberg and and others, uh, but he um, was able to. He, uh, in order to make the, have the trial work, uh, he he had to get um, the drugs from companies. Um, so the so he allowed the companies to provide the drugs, um, but he didn't allow the companies to have any uh, other uh, role in the trial. And so it was a completely uh, independent uh, uh, trial in terms of. Uh, uh, the running and the, and the conduct. Um, so there are you know there are times when you may need to um, um, to get the the drug from the company, but you have to keep uh, the you have to be you have to keep the control of um, of the trial and of the uh, analysis and uh, interpretation and publication uh, completely independent from the companies. I think um, if otherwise. Um, if if you don't if you allow them to have control, you're you're basically uh, it's going to be very difficult not to have it biased, right? And if you sign an agreement with them that they have to uh, see the data and uh, and be part of the uh, publication, then you're you're basically losing your independence. And so if if we're trying to separate. The drug companies from funding the research. How do we incentivize companies then still to create transformative medications and to create drugs that, you know, treat conditions if, you know, they're not going to be a part of the trials and, you know, they're not going to be able to fund the research? Have you read uh, John Abramson's book? And I, I think you you interviewed him, right? Yeah, yeah. we did. We yeah. did speak yeah. to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he um, he makes the case that uh, the drug companies are making huge profits, more than any other uh, companies in the in the world, right? And by a large amount. And so uh, the idea that they need incentivization it's it's just not true. They uh, um, they could um, be making you know still good profits and uh, and not, uh, but it's going to require something in, in the United States. I mean, I I think what it it would be it wouldn't be that difficult to insist that all um, phase three trials be run by independent researchers. And it would create jobs for people like uh, you who are interested, you know, students who are interested in research. And uh, I think I guess it would be it would require the FDA uh, and the government to to make that uh, a law. But if that happened, that would greatly improve the situation. Um, and drugs that are are proven to be beneficial would get on the market, and drugs that are are marginal or not beneficial would not get on the market. Um, so, and then the companies would be incentivized appropriately, right? Because they, they they obviously want to find uh, good drugs, but they also, they, right now they can bring drugs on the market that aren't better, 
and that they can make money by just marketing, right? We we don't want a situation where where the where the marketing is the is the driving force, not not the research. We've been talking a lot about the importance of original clinical trials, controlled, randomized. But when when is it the case that systematic reviews take over in our ability to guide the standard of care? When do we say that um, a drug is or isn't effective despite what much of the literature has supposedly said? Okay, can you clarify, can you, can you clarify what, what you're asking there? Yes. Sure, sure, sorry. So I guess in, to be more clear, at what point do we start to believe a systematic review in terms of governing how we treat our patients versus what the latest and greatest clinical trial has just told us. Okay, well, you, you never should just uh, jump on the, the bandwagon because of the latest and greatest trial, right? You should always say, well, what's the, how does that fit into the overall evidence, right? So, and that's what a systematic review would, uh, would, would be there to, to do. You know, the, this, uh, I'm, see if I can, so one of the big trials that has, uh, that has had an impact is the SPRINT trial where they were looking at blood pressure targets. And then they based, um, they were trying to push uh, doctors to push for lower targets. Uh, but if you really, if you look at the SPRINT trial carefully, you would realize that the sprint trial doesn't prove that lower targets are beneficial. And if you look at the overall evidence uh, from the systematic review, and, and we it, it's published in the Cochrane Library, uh, um, targets, um, blood pressure targets for hypertension, um, you'll see that there isn't good evidence for lower targets, uh, um, but based on the overall overall systematic review. And, and, and based on that, then a doctor shouldn't be uh, pushing for for lower targets uh, with their patients. So that's, that a, that's an example where, you know, we're, we're looking at, uh, but, but it needs to be a systematic review that's done by independent uh, group, right? There's, there, we're getting, there's, when the whole idea came out, it, it seemed like uh, it was going to answer all the questions, but now they've, they've flooded the literature with systematic reviews that aren't worth uh, reading, okay? which, is, which is unfortunate. Um, so you have to look at uh, who's doing the systematic review and, and, and the quality of the systematic review. Yeah. So as a physician who's treating patients, there's, there's all these systematic reviews. You mentioned there's multiple um, for different topics. There's guidelines. As physicians, you know, we're taught to look at the guidelines and now, you know, people are saying, look at systematic reviews. And so, so how do we decide as physicians how to treat our patients and what data to, to trust? Well, in general, um, reviews done in the Cochrane Library are more independent and reliable. So if, you know, if, if it's a good review and it's uh, published in the Cochrane Library, then that would be a more reliable source than, uh, than other than non-Cochrane reviews, uh, basically. But there isn't, um, you know, not, not all Cochrane reviews are perfect either. So, so it is something that uh, 
I'm still pushing to make, uh, you know, have Cochrane become the, uh, the ultimate source uh, uh, for, for evidence. And uh, it's going through a reorganization right now, but uh, which I, I'm hoping that it, at the end of it, it will come out uh, and, and continue to, to produce uh, the best available evidence. Uh, so, it, and it's needed, it's needed. Uh, the world needs a, an independent source. So you should always be looking for sources that are completely independent from any other, any influences. This is a basic question. What makes a good and bad systematic review? Well, you would, a good review would follow the methodology set up by the, the Cochrane collaboration. Um, you would want to know that all of the authors are not are there just to find out what the answer is and not uh, in, a, in, in a conflicted uh, position. And then um, you'd want to then have a look at, uh, at the trials and what the data shows and then see if it's, it's convincing to you, right? So, um, and hopefully, you know, it'll be, um, there, it'll be interpreted in a way that uh, uh, is also accurate. But it, I guess, I mean, all medical students really should be familiar with what a systematic review is and, and how, to, how to look at it. Peter and I were talking about for the show, and maybe this is different, and I'm sure it is different in Canada, but we were talking about how um, as prescribers, physicians need to know which treatment that they want to put their patient on, but then it also has to get improved by the insurance company who has to decide, is this the correct treatment that the patient should be on? And so if a physician is trying to prescribe a medication and the insurance company doesn't agree with, with their, you know, beliefs on the literature, you know, I, I feel like that's a really difficult spot to put a physician in. And so are these systematic reviews like getting to the insurance companies and I guess as a physician, what are you supposed to do in that, that? Yeah, well, it's, it's, you're, you're in a difficult situation and, and, the, and the United States is a, is a, in a difficult situation, right? Uh, I watch uh, I watch television, and uh, and uh, about half of the ads are for uh, prescription drugs. Uh, it's uh, it it puts uh, patients and doctors in a in a very difficult position. It uh, and it's just inappropriate. There you there should not be advertising for something that's as important as uh, as prescription drugs. Yeah. Insurance companies, you know, should be should be looking at the evidence. They should be getting independent people to uh, uh, to give them the uh, the best available evidence, and some do. I think uh, you know. So there are situations where I think they do try to find out what uh, the best available evidence is, and then they also probably are thinking about cost. Um, but but clearly, if if there's two drugs and one costs ten times as much as the other, then and they're both about the same. You should be using the, uh, the lower cost uh, uh, drug, right? Yeah. But it's uh, it's it's difficult. But there's certainly a great need for uh, for young people to become expert in this area and then be able to uh, advise. And I'd like to see some you know major changes in the in the FDA actually, and 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 see them uh, be taking a stronger stance and and working for the public, and not so much for the drug companies. It's, uh, it, it's sad that it's uh, 
it's gone from a, an organization that was there for the public and is now mostly serving the drug industry. They're very persuasive. <laughs> they are. Money, yeah. money can be a very convincing uh, ally. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that one thing that may happen, and let's just say in a bad systematic review, is that you could potentiate biases that are already in the uh, literature. I was curious, what are some of the strategies that the Cochrane Group uses to um, reduce that effect? Because I'm thinking a lot about our conversation with Dr. Abramson, and you mentioned that these trials are being funded and run by drug companies. And I remember very clearly from his our talk with him, he was talking about there was this kind of veil that he was he didn't appreciate until he was able to look back in his time litigating in these trials. And I'm wondering, do you have any stories from your own time doing systematic reviews or anything from working with the Cochrane Group that kind of gives a little bit of hope to people that that good systematic reviews could combat the biases that we already have in literature? Yeah, well, <clears throat> what, what is being done right now in, in, in the Cochrane, and it's supposed to be done in all systematic reviews, is that every trial you evaluate in terms of its risk of bias. Uh, and so and there's, uh, there's domains that you go through. And, uh, and so, um, you, um, so you come out at the end that uh, the trial has uh, either a low risk of bias or an intermediate or a high risk of bias. And then when you put the trials together, you have to make a, an overall judgment. And let's say uh, a third of them were high risk of bias and, and a third were intermediate and a third were low risk of bias. And you should be then looking at, is the evidence um, the same for uh, all those settings? And uh, if, if, it's, uh, if it's not the same, then you should be then um, perhaps um, interpreting based only on the trials that have a, have a low risk of bias. And then overall, um, when you do a Cochrane review now, you're made to, you're asked to make a judgment um, based on um, the certainty of the evidence. And so you'll see a lot of the Cochrane reviews, they'll say um, it, it shows uh, this, 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 this benefit, but the, the evidence uh, that there's a low certainty that that's, that's a true uh, reflection of, of the evidence. And so when you see a low certainty like that, then you, you shouldn't go away and say, oh, I should be prescribing this drug, right? Because basically there is low certainty. And that should be a, an impetus for people then to, to do a, a good tri uh, randomized trial that would, um, uh, would, would answer that question. And so that there is a, isn't a low certainty that there's a moderate uh, to high certainty that, uh, that the, the evidence is good. Yeah. So it's, um, so there is, you know, there are people working very hard to try and uh, sort all this out, but it's not, it's not a simple, it's not a simple uh, process. We're getting we're getting involved now in a network meta-analysis, and and again, uh, that it's being misused as well. Unfortunately, it it it's a powerful tool, but but it has to be done uh, properly and by people who who uh, are unbiased and and trying to find out what the truth is. Yeah. So, what advice would you give to medical trainees, residents, medical students who are just starting now and? want to do good for their patients and want to prescribe the right medications, but 
are kind of unsure at this point? Well, I would advise them that they should be skeptical of guidelines. Uh, um, there, there are um, a small number of guidelines that are done uh, without conflicts, but most of the, most of them are um, still being funded uh, by uh, by uh, conflicted people, or being done by conflicted people. So you should be you you, you should be skeptical of guidelines. You shouldn't feel like you have to follow guidelines if you don't feel like it's a, uh, that they're um, are a good source. Um, I think uh, <clears throat> I would advise students to to get to be aware of um, organizations like uh, Choosing Wisely and the Lown Institute that are, are, are looking at uh, uh, these issues and uh, identifying low value care. And in and and you know and, and John Abramson points out that healthcare outcomes in the U.S. are poor, uh, not only for poor people but for rich people as well. And it's because uh, almost certainly it's because of of inappropriate uh, treatment, over medicalization, over diagnosis, etc. So people are being harmed by this. It's a it's a big it's a big issue really appreciated that advice. I think it's very pragmatic and uh, highly impactful. And so we like to end our interviews with a, a question about books. So Caleb and I love to read. And we were wondering what books would you recommend to young leaders in medicine um, and just books that you may have liked that have influenced your career? Yeah, well, I've <clears throat> most the most one I've read most recently is, uh, is John Abramson's uh, book on, called Sickening. Um, it's, uh, it's got a lot of good information, uh, there. Um, there's one, uh, I think it's by Shannon Brownlee, um, about medications. I, I think it's called, uh, yeah, Our Daily Meds. Yeah, I think that's the, the name. And that's a very good book. And that's an easy read. And that's something that, uh, uh, patients can read as well. Another book that I think is is really important is uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker, uh, and he is he points out very nicely that the epidemic of mental health problems uh, in North America uh, correlates with the, with the use of drugs. So instead of uh, psychiatric drugs decreasing mental health problems, they appear to be increasing them. So that's a huge issue that we should be. Uh, very seriously looking at uh, and that's where we really need long-term randomized trials to see whether the benefits are outweighing the harms of these drugs because uh, it appears that the harms are outweighing the benefits yeah. well thank you so much for speaking with us today uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and i definitely learned a lot okay well thank you and thanks for uh taking an interest and I'm looking forward to the young generation uh, to solve some of these problems. Yeah. So that's up to you for, to, uh, to see what you can do to, to make things going better going forward. Yeah. Thank you. Thank we you. hope we inspired a couple people to become systematic reviewers. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have a good evening. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. you. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.